1: 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, three, four, five, five, four, three, two one. Space Nuts. Astronauts
0: report, it feels good. Hello again and thank you for joining us on this, the 204th edition of the Space Nuts podcast. It's great to have your company yet again. And joining me, as always, is Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Good day, mate. How was that? <laughs> that was pretty ordinary. Yeah, I <laughs> <laughs> can't do it. It's terrible. <laughs> no, it's not something that yeah. a non-native can really handle. That's right. You can always pick a fake. Yeah. <laughs> but but um, yeah, please don't do it again. No, now, I <laughs> Today, we've got a a couple of launch stories to talk about involving SpaceX and Virgin, Uh, one that may or may not happen and may or may not have happened by the time people have heard the podcast, and the other that uh, did happen and then it didn't. So... We'll talk about that. Uh, a new planet formation has been discovered by the um, uh, the BLT Sandwich Telescope uh, or the VLT, as we call it, the Very Large Telescope. And we've got a couple of questions, one about redshift and we've got an audio question from Giuliano in Wellington, New Zealand, which we'll get stuck into soon. I, I like his question because it does uh, bring up some philosophical concepts in terms of intellectual um, or extraterrestrial intelligence finding us. And uh, we have talked about that before in terms of how would the world react if they discovered tomorrow that there's extraterrestrial life, intelligent life. But what if they found us first is what we're going to be talking about today. So we're going to uh, tackle all of those questions and situations on Space Nuts So let's start off with SpaceX, Fred. uh, They are um, basically gearing up for a launch this week, which may or may not have happened by the time people are listening to this podcast,
1: and I think the, the problem they're facing at the moment is weather. That's exactly right, Andrews. Uh, so, yeah, we ha- we kind of hope, um, I guess both you and I are hoping, that um, this is all redundant information by the time uh, the podcast reaches the earphones. Of, well, that's, that's one of the, uh, the two pillars of our our reason for being, adequacy
0: and redundancy. Yeah, exactly. If we can achieve both of those things, we've done
1: well. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm, we're both pretty redundant anyway, but that's all right. Um, so, uh, the, uh, it's story story well worth covering. Um, uh, You know, from where we sit at the moment, uh, less than 24 hours before the launch, um, it's very exciting. We have the first crewed mission from the United States since the Space Shuttle, and it's two US astronauts, Bob Behnken and uh, Doug Hurley, uh, and a US-built spacecraft. The um, SpaceX Falcon 9 is the um, the, the launch vehicle, and their Crew Dragon is the capsule that will carry these two astronauts into orbit, and of course it will be launched from Pad 39A at uh, Cape Canaveral, where the, the Saturn V's and the Shuttles left from. So a big moment mm-hmm. really in um, space history, and uh, I am very excited about it. I think many people are. Uh, it, uh, it it it's not just about national pride, um, the fact that, the, that, um, American astronauts have had to use uh, the Soyuz shuttle service, uh, Soyuz spacecraft, uh, for the last nine years to, to get up and down to the space station. That, of course, is uh, something that they, they're quite keen to move away from just to give more flexibility as well as anything else. But um, it's also cheaper. It's uh, SpaceX can do it cheaper than Roscosmos can do by quite a significant margin. Um, it's not a cheap... Trip to orbit, Andrew. Um, do, have you got any ideas how much it costs? Uh, well, I, th- I, th- I can only go uh,
0: what to, to actually do the whole deal and get one into
1: space. Yeah, oh, gosh, well, right. let's, let's put it um, a little bit more, um, a bit more uh, specifically. Uh, the cost per seat for an astronaut. Um oh, I would have thought. A
0: civilian astronaut that they were talking about uh, in the tourism sector was, what, somewhere around the quarter of a million dollars mark? Uh, but I imagine it would be more for a SpaceX launch.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, that's right. Actually, that's really interesting you should say that because the cheapest of those tourists, this was back in, and this was again Soyuz, back in the um, early 2000s when uh, Space Adventures brokered a deal between rich people and the Roscosmos. Uh, the minimum charge then was 20 million US dollars. Um, That's right. I remember. And that that gave you a few days in the space station as well. Uh, I think one of the customers probably paid twice that much, which is quite remarkable. Uh, But the cost cost that NASA is being charged for astronauts being ferried up and down to the space station is $85 million per seat. Whoa. So uh, it's expensive. And uh, SpaceX... Promises to bring that down significantly uh, with, I think they're talking about $55 million each for the two astronauts that are flying uh, today. Uh, and uh, but this spacecraft can, can hold uh, a total of seven astronauts. There are only two on board. So if you fill it up, it comes down significantly further. I've heard a figure of 20 million mm. per seat. Well, it's, it's only two because of social distancing requirements <laughs> of COVID-19. That's, yeah, I think it was always going to be what happening there always going to be true for the first the first test it's actually even though it's the first flight it's called demo two because demo one was the same thing but doing it all automatically with no astronauts on board and that was a success uh, last year
0: yeah H- having having been to cape canaveral and you mentioned uh you know launch complex 39a uh y- you don't really get a sense of scale when you're watching a launch on television because everything's focused on on the rocket or the space vehicle or whatever, and the, and the countdown clock. But it is a massive complex. Mm. I mean, you you look out over the um the the vastness of it, and you can see the the different um, launch pads dotted all over the place. It is really quite a remarkable facility. I, I really enjoyed my day there. I
1: had a great time. Fantastic. So um- just saying. Yeah, no, you're <laughs> just saying because you know I haven't been there. <laughs> uh, but I will wonder. Well, there's not many places I've been of an astronomical
0: nature that okay. you haven't, Fred. So <laughs> I've, I've got to flaunt it when I can.
1: Yeah, you go for it, Andrew. I don't mind that. Um, mm. uh, I'll, um, I, I hope to get there someday because it will be a wonderful uh, place to, to visit. Um, so going back to the other space story, um, we kind of yes. read that one because it's sort of hanging in the air, um, is the, the Virgin Orbit uh, mission to la- make their first attempt at launching into uh, orbit or, 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 or launching a spacecraft into orbit from an aircraft. <laughs> um, you have uh, been reading about that, I think, as well.
0: Yes, I have. This uh, was a, um, a launch that uh, I, I think was going very, very well, and, in fact, they did uh, release the, um, the the launch vehicle from the belly of the 747 Jumbo, yep. but then they had to terminate. Something uh, went yep. wrong that
1: they referred to as an anomaly. Anomaly, that's right, <laughs> and we don't yet know what that was, um, but you, you're absolutely right. The, um, and, and this in itself is pretty exciting because – uh, Virgin Orbit uh, are positioning themselves in the launch market for small spacecraft. Uh, their their rocket, which um, the, the example that was used the other day was called Launcher 1, uh, they tell it like it is.
0: <laughs> like yeah, they do. Astronomy, one, yeah. astronomy one-on-one. You know, yeah. your, your very first class when you go to university to study yeah.
1: astronomy is this is how we name things. Yeah. Keep it simple. Keep it simple. <laughs> so Launcher 1... Um, uh, and it's and it, the class of spacecraft that it is can carry uh, up to about 500 kilograms into orbit. That's half a ton effectively. Uh, and the 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 uh, idea is that you you ferry it up to about 10 kilometers or about six and a half miles altitude under the wing actually of the seven four seven. Something I didn't know is that 747s, and I think this might be standard across the, the whole range, have a, a spare pylon underneath the wing, which was meant to be able to carry a spare engine. Um, I believe, I, yeah, I did know that, actually, yeah. And so they've modified that to carry the rocket. Uh, and the idea it is, is you, you fly up in the in the jet up to this height and then the rocket's released. Uh, it's um, I think the jet tilts upwards to release the rocket. The rocket... Then fires its motor and away it goes uh, up to much higher altitude and of course with the horizontal velocity it needs to get into orbit. So everything went brilliantly apparently, um, except uh, and including the the, the the initiation of the burn. They they press the button and, uh, and the rocket fired. But as you said, some anomaly shut it down. Um, we'll hear, I'm sure, about what what happened. Uh, virgin, <clears throat> the, the kind of Virgin. Uh, group of companies uh, overall and they 're not actually connected <laughs> except in any in any other way than the name but certainly virgin galactic richard branson 's other pet, uh, uh, pet you know pet um, uh, occupation they 've been incredibly tenacious with uh, keeping going when things have not looked as though they're working all that well, they've got over huge numbers of hurdles, and I suspect that same ethos probably permeates Virgin Orbit, even though the two are, are actually not connected. Uh, <clears throat> Virgin Orbit will, um, will I'm sure, be working on uh, other missions, and and they want to do it soon because they clearly want to to start trading and get into business. Mm-hmm. Um, Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm hoping you'll ask. And and
0: Launcher One was quite a big, um, big rocket. It's uh, over 21 meters in length, which is uh, pretty significant.
1: Yeah. Um, I'm hoping you'll ask me why they do it this way, Andrew. Why they drop them from the belly of a plane. Yeah, rather than setting them up on a <clears throat> on launch pad 39 and lighting the fuse down there.
0: I would hazard a guess that it gives them some velocity to work with, a sort of a, a, a bit of a, a speed advantage rather than – and saves fuel. Yeah, I that's
1: think – That's just a guess. That's a, yeah, it's, um, that's probably true, but I think there are fairly marginal advantages – Uh, And the height, you know, 10 kilometres, you've got to get up to probably more like 200 kilometres for a stable orbit. So you're not really giving it a height advantage. Apparently, what... Really um, underpins this business model to do this is the flexibility, and in in many ways we've got the perfect example because we've just been talking about the possibility of weather stopping the launch of uh, of the SpaceX um, you know cr- crew, uh, or it's mm. a crew in the SpaceX r- rocket. Um, if you are flying your your jet, your sorry, your rocket aboard an aircraft. You can actually pick where you want to launch from, and you can pretty well go anywhere in the world, uh, with <clears throat> with um, uh, a choice of the best weather conditions, and also you can place yourself so that you, you you're optimally. Uh, positioned for the, the orbit that this thing, whatever it is, is designed to go into. You can actually, uh, you know, f- uh, you've got an advantage in being able to uh, put it uh, in the in the right position to get the right orbit. So it's quite a complex um, reasoning behind it. But uh, Virgin Orbit are, I think, very gung ho about it. I think they think this is a, a winner in the in the small satellite launch, you know, launch arena.
0: Yeah, I, I'm sure they'll iron out the anomaly and yeah. learn from that, and, and you know, they'll 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 work um, forward from there, and and they will have success. I have no doubt about that, and and I, I do want to sort of just mention the 747 jumbo what a great workhorse of an airplane that has been over many many years and so versatile to be able to you know do everything from run, run cargo and passengers to be able to do launch vehicles like this uh, I, I think it's the best plane ever made in history i would suggest
1: uh you're probably not far off the mark there i think that's right and you know an extraordinary as you say ex- extraordinary workhorse um yeah. Have... I've
0: only ever been on one in my life, believe it or not. Seriously, one. I thought you were going to say yep.
1: you've been on dozens.
0: <laughs> no, I've been on the A380 about five or six times, yeah. but only one 747. Okay, well. So, um... And the way things are, probably the only one I'll have you ever been be on
1: Yeah, no, they're, they're, I've spent a lot of my life in 747s, as you can probably imagine, going between Australia and Europe. And, uh, yeah, always, always reliable. I have to say the A380 is quite a lot quieter, but that's you know what's that? That's not that much of a difference.
0: I, I love the A380, but uh, sadly both both planes coming to the end of their uh, working lives because uh, there are uh, smaller, cheaper, faster, more efficient. Planes on the market now, so uh, the, the whole aviation game was set to change and then COVID-19 came along and changed it for them anyway. But, um, yeah, the future will be very different in aviation. We'll miss the 747, I can tell you that. Yep. Uh, this is Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and, of course, Fred Watson. Three, two, one. Space Nuts. Now, I've mentioned uh, being able to become a um, a supporter of our podcast through, uh, well, a couple of platforms now, uh, Patreon, of course, and there's another one called Supercast, and you can find all the details on our website at bytes.com, B-I-T-E-S-Z.com. Now, uh, one of the other things that we're offering is premium membership. Now, you can become a premium member of Bytes Network, uh, and uh, you can choose your own bundle. So, for example, for $7 a month with a 28 day free trial, you can uh, combine Space Nuts and Space Time with Stuart Gary. For $8 a month, you can combine Space Nuts, uh, Dark Sky Conversations, and Space Time. So, uh, check it all out at Bytes Network. That's B I T E S Z Network. Supercast. Tech. Bytes Network. Supercast. Tech. Tech. You'll find that on our website if you want to have a look at it. It's optional, uh, but uh, there are benefits to becoming a premium member of the Bytes network. Now, Fred, let's talk about this um, this planet formation that's been spotted by the Very Large Telescope, and it's only 520 light years away. I, I just saw the bus out the front stop to pick people up to go there.
1: <laughs> on our doorstep. Um, actually it's yeah for, for planetary work it's uh, it's quite a reasonable distance is that 520 light years um it's in the uh, it's a star in the constellation of origa which is the charioteer and a northern constellation uh it's named ab origi uh, and the ab tells you that it's actually a variable star that's um The the two letters like that are always variable stars, ones that vary in brightness. But it's been of interest to astronomers for quite some time. Um, There is a team uh, of uh, astronomers based, uh, actually it's a fairly global group, France, Taiwan, the US, Belgium. Um, These are scientists who are particularly interested in the star, but also the fact that it has... What we call a protoplanetary disk around it, a, a disk of material, uh, which is where planets are forming. Uh, now, you and I have spoken before about these things, and the, the, the world's best telescope at seeing them is ALMA, uh, the Atacama Large Millimeter Array um, in northern Chile. Uh, ESO is also a partner in that, but the US and uh, other countries are too. ALMA is uh, a, a telescope that looks essentially at the the, the you know the, the the microwaves if you like coming from uh space and it turns out that the energies that these dusty discs uh radiate at uh, are, are detectable by alma and they 've been great at finding discs of dust around uh, uh, around young stars where planets are being born but what 's now happened uh is that ha- after um observing uh, Ebi Origi with ALMA a few years ago, this same group have actually used a new instrument on the Very Large Telescope down there, uh, uh, not very far from ALMA, a bit further south uh, down in Chile, um, in the mountains, uh, in order to probe it even more. And this new instrument is actually called SPHERE. I can't remember what SPHERE stands for. I know the P is polarimetry. And that tells you something interesting about it—that it looks, uh, it's sensitive to polarize the polarization of light, and that's very important when you're looking at a dust cloud because dust actually does that; it polarizes the light. Um, yeah, I guess most of our listeners will be familiar with polarized light from the use of polarizing sunglasses—they they let the vibrations uh, in one direction through, but not the other um, direction—and that's the basis of polarimetry. So. The uh, the Sphere instrument, it does that. It also blocks off the parent star so you can see the details of things around it. And it's got an adaptive optics system. So it's uh, capable of very high-resolution imaging, of uh, uh, things involving dust. It works in the infrared. I can't remember whether I said that, but it's an infrared instrument. So you're looking at the heat that these dust grains are radiating. And so uh, with Sphere, they've uh, produced this new image of the dusty disk around AB Aurigi and revealed a detail that's got everybody very excited. Uh, Because um, looking at this dusty disk, I don't know about you, Andrew, you're probably looking at the same image that I am, and it's pretty easy to find on the web. But it it looks like a spiral galaxy. It's got that spiral structure to it, uh, which we're familiar with in gigantic spiral galaxies, which, of course, are gazillions of times bigger than this. But what's interesting when you look probe deep into the into the spiral structure, not very far from the star itself, there's a kind of kink in it, a little twist where the the spiral structure changes direction, um, and that is being highlighted as where a planet is actually in the process of forming, uh, because what ah. you're seeing is two columns of material basically accreting onto this. Uh, this planet which itself will be rotating um and it's a really beautiful image uh the, the the planet being formed is about as far from its parent star as neptune is from the sun so it's the kind of outer solar system type thing but to see it um with this kink in the in the spiral structure and realize that that's where a planet's being born it's uh, it's one of these things that you know raises the hairs on the back of your neck it's quite exciting yeah do we do we know what kind of planet it might turn into is it too early to say I think it is too early to say but um if there's any you know if you can take any lessons from our solar system it, it probably will be a, a gas giant or an ice giant uh looking at mm-hmm. neptune as a as a role model for that neptune may have a, a rocky core we we don't know uh this planet may have too we know even less about that but uh it's yeah it's very exciting to see you know planet formation in uh, in action and the the thing that i guess makes it doubly significant is that when Uh, theoretical astronomers build models of the way planets form in in dust disks. These kinks are exactly what you would expect to see where a planet is actually in the process of formation. So they were predicted and now they've been seen.
0: Yes. Uh, And another sort of stupid question from the peanut gallery, Uh, how long would a process like this take?
1: Yeah, and that's not a stupid question at all. Um, you know, we—I we, think the media have got hold of this and said the the instant of planet birth. Um, that instant probably is yeah, going to—that sounds 10, about right. Ten million years or something like that. So it's a long. How long? Instant. I would guess uh, it will be um, measured in millions of years. Um, yeah. Uh, it's uh, maybe not too many because there's sort of growing evidence that planet formation is relatively quick process. We used to think it took hundreds of millions of years, but I think it's more likely to be millions or tens of millions of years.
0: Mm, so this one's really in the early stages.
1: This is Probably, just sort yeah. of beginning. Uh, it, there's not really anything to see. I mean, the, the problem is that at 520 light years away, the planet itself is well below the resolution threshold, even of an instrument like Sphere. But, um, but the, the, all the evidence is there, this, this kink in the spiral structure, or the twist, as they call it. Mm.
0: Very good. Uh, by the way, Fred, Sphere, Spectro Polyometric High Contrast Exoplanet Research. There you are. That's the Thank name you. of the
1: uh, instrument. Uh, it's attached to the V. you'd have it at the, on the tip of your tongue.
0: <laughs> Thanks very yes. much. Oh, yes. Oh, no. Um, I, as soon as you said you didn't know what it meant, I, I had to look it yeah, up because I, <laughs> <So, laughs> I, I knew it was going to be some impressive combination, and it, and it certainly was.
1: Yeah. So as you can tell from that, um, it was designed to look at exoplanets, at planets uh, in orbit around stars much nearer than uh, the origi but it's But um, it is actually a... You know, it's a versatile instrument. You can use it for all kinds of things, including the the, the dusty disks of star of, of young stars. Mm, okay.
0: Uh, all right. Well, um, clearly we're going to have to wait for the next yes. stage of this uh, this discovery. Yeah. We might have to wait um, some
1: couple of million years or so, but we'll let you know. I think it was is was just, just on that point, Andrew. Um, you know, if, so this is at the distance of Neptune from the sun. So it's going to be orbiting in a couple of hundred years or so, once every 200 years. So it's certainly possible that if these same astronomers uh, use the same instrument to look at this object in a decade, they might see a difference in the in the shape, in the structure. There might be a difference that's discernible. We should ask okay. them to do that. They'd probably do it for us, yeah, they would indeed. <laughs> uh,
0: so it's a watch this space boom boom scenario. Yeah, uh, <laughs> there it is. If you're listening to the Space Nuts podcast. It's episode 204. Andrew Dunkley here with Fred Watson. Roger,
1: you're here,
0: also. Space Nuts. Once again, a big shout out and hello to all our social media followers, whatever platform you may be on, uh, YouTube with our 1.25,000 subscribers. Uh, We've got uh, people on the Space Nuts podcast group on Facebook and of course we have an official Space Nuts Facebook page. But we also, um, well I, also communicate uh, through a whole series of other astronomy Facebook pages and, and social media platforms and we quite often get comments there as well. So hello to you. Uh, and thank you for listening to the Space Nuts podcast. And, um, and thank you for sending in your questions. We've got a couple of new questions uh, to deal with today, Fred. And we have an audio question today from Wellington, New Zealand, from
1: Giuliano. Hi, Andrew and Fred. My name is Giuliano. I live in Wellington, New Zealand. Um, my question is about um, extraterrestrial intelligence or rather about our own intelligence as seen by an alien race Um, i've often heard people say that any race that's able to reach earth will be so superior to us that to them would look like ants octopi or chimps look to us do you think aliens may apply a sort of um cosmical baseline to define intelligence like for example the capacity for self-awareness reasoning problem solving um, or dramatically altered environment. I'm a long time listener. I've also just read the Tyrrhenian Enigma. Good work, Andrew. I'm yet to summon the courage to read one of Fred's books, but I'm sure I'll get there eventually. Thank you so much. Bye.
0: And Giuliano, it does require a lot of courage to read one of Fred's books. Fred's <laughs> <the> books. <laughs> I will. I will say that no, of course not. They're, they're fabulous. I've got a couple of yours, Fred. I'm looking at one right now. Oh. Star Craving Mad. Don't and why is why is, uranus, why is uranus upside down i like that one <laughs> um yes oh and and juliano thank you for reading the Tyrannian enigma the uh, the feedback has been very very positive uh, people are enjoying the story and and the twists in the story and so far nobody has come to me and said oh, i picked it i knew i i picked it on page 42 actually someone did say that but then they were wrong <laughs> uh, but yes uh, we no i appreciate it now um juliano's question Uh, fascinates me because I I love talking about extraterrestrial life. And as I mentioned earlier, we did discuss uh, through another question how humanity might react if we suddenly tomorrow learned that there was extraterrestrial intelligent life. But Giuliano's question sort of flips the coin. What if they found us first and uh, how might they perceive us? That is a really interesting question to, uh, to discuss and debate, I imagine.
1: I, I think so. It, it, it absolutely it is. Um it, you know the exactly uh, as uh, as says and he asks exactly the right question how do you define intelligence? Mm. Uh and it's not an easy thing to define. I think it was if I remember rightly I think it was Carl Sagan who um offered the definition that an intelligent <clears throat> species species is one that is functionally similar to ourselves. Uh, in other words, that they—excuse <clears throat> me—they have the, you know, the same sort of reasoning capacity as we do. But that—that uh, <clears throat> that, um, is only seeing half the story, really. Because um, yes, that's our perspective of what it might mean. But if you put yourself in the position of a, 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 another intelligent species and i guess if they're going to be aware of our presence they would need to be at least as intelligent as ourselves or more intelligent because they would have to have the technology uh, in order to you know in order to uh, detect that there were other intelligent species in the universe uh, so <clears throat> that that suggests that Yes, uh, any intelligent species that found us would be more intelligent than we are, or perhaps the same. But would they, you know, how would or just, they... Or just, or just unlucky. <laughs> or just unlucky, yeah. Would they regard us as, um, well, these are interesting things. They, they, they've they got all kinds of behavioural problems that we don't have. Um, I don't know. It's uh, it, It's, yeah, I think... Uh, as as uh, giuliano says they they might uh, define intelligence as including the capacity for self-awareness reasoning problem solving and and altering the environment of course which um is another definition that's been made of what a living organism is um mm. but but i i it's it, it is hard to put yourself in their place i guess the nearest um The nearest thing that comes to mind on this, and, you know, I always come back to this old chestnut, uh, my favourite science fiction movie being 2001 A Space Odyssey. At the end of that, what you see is a benign intelligence. Well, in fact, all the way through, the message is a benign intelligence trying to uh, push uh, uh th- these earthly creatures in the right direction uh, and eventually turning them into nothing but energy i think is more or less what what happens at the end of it um maybe you know that that would be a, an intelligence that uh, likes the idea of, of bringing along other less intelligent species but whether all intelligence will be like that is another is another question altogether. Certainly Stephen Hawking didn't think they would be. He thought they might eat us for breakfast.
0: Yeah, I, I think um, Giuliano's question was actually demonstrated in one of L. Ron Hubbard's book when an alien species came to Earth and they didn't look at, at humans as anything but a, um, a, 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 a an animal that lived on the planet that had no... Other um, level of intelligence than any other animal on the planet. Uh, I'm just trying to think of the name of the book, um, and they made it into a movie, which starred John Travolta, and it was, uh, I think, designated the worst movie ever made. Um, <laughs> yeah. But but it it, um, it it demonstrates the exact question that Giuliano raises: that the, these aliens turned up and did not see us as anything but a, um, you know a passing interest, and yeah. somewhere along the line they discovered that we actually were intelligent. But uh, it, it's a fascinating uh, question, and and I suppose it also brings into play uh, the question of the likelihood of extraterrestrial intelligence, and you and I both agree that in the not-too-distant future we will probably find microbial life of some kind probably within our solar system, uh, and there are two or three prime candidates for that which we talked about recently but it is a giant leap a giant leap to reach a point of intelligent life Uh, and we on this planet being the only example of it anywhere in the universe that we're aware of at the moment are probably or perhaps let's say perhaps a freak of nature
1: um, that's right, but actually, it's it's not just notwithstanding the biblical angle. I'm not with. I'm not dismissing no, we're not that. Going there. No, that's right. But, sorry, but um, it seems that this the, the step from single-celled organism to multi-celled organisms is the one that's the the, the really difficult one to make. And maybe once you've got things evolving, uh, when you've passed that hurdle, then they may well evolve fairly quickly. Uh, because, of course, intelligence is a, is a spectrum. You know, We are at one end of it, but we're not that far in front of dolphins and the chimpanzees and, and, and other creatures who've certainly got a level of intelligence. Um, mm. uh, there was a comment made, I think this is Charlie Lineweaver who made that, who suggested that uh, the process of... Um, you know, reaching the level of intelligence that we have reached is not an inevitable one in itself, because it what it points to is the fact that uh, one hundred and thirty million years ago or so that's when the African and South American contents continents I beg your pardon, separated as Gondwana broke up. Uh, I think it was about 130 million years ago, if I remember rightly. And, um, you know, the the, the the ingredients of what became Homo sapiens were there in both halves of this. Uh, it broke up, but it was only in Africa that we saw the, the emergence of the early hominids and, uh, you know, eventually Homo sapiens. So his point mm. is that it, it's absolutely not... Uh, you know, there isn't a predetermined pathway uh, where you've got all the right ingredients, you will get progressively more and more intelligence. He's suggesting that even the development of intelligence uh, and a big brain is... um, is uh, almost accidental so yeah it's uh it's that's stuff we can talk about for hours but um... oh yes i mean you've already
0: prompted another thought in my mind and that is okay we are homo sapiens and we we sort of took over the planet but we weren't the only oh, that's right. humanoids to occupy the planet and for a time we coexisted with other species and it could have gone either way i mean yeah. There's talk, or you know, there have been suggestions through anthropology that um, Neanderthals could have become the dominant species, except um, we, I think, the story goes, were more intelligent or at least more uh, versatile and managed to survive where they failed and there's even another argument that we bumped them off.
1: Yeah. Absolutely.
0: And so <laughs> that's how we became the dominant uh, intelligent species on the planet. Uh, but it, I, I like watching a lot of nature documentaries and you see intelligence in uh, in creatures um, that that have social organization uh I, I'm watching a, a series about saving orangutans there's been a wonderful series that I've watched on um, subscriber television about the orangutan jungle school over in um, uh, Borneo, and the the when you watch these creatures and you get to know them, and they you do actually through watching the show get to know individuals. You see personalities. You see intelligence. You see problem solving. Intelligence, uh, you know, for a long time we thought that that was us, but it exists in so many creatures. It's just yeah. a different kind of intelligence. Yeah that's right. Um so so, so for, for for Giuliano to suggest that you know aliens coming here and finding us or at least observing us and understanding us may see us as chimpanzees I th- I think is a you know a fair argument.
1: Yeah. <clears throat>
0: It's great stuff. (laughs) It is, I know. It just you you can you can go on and on and on about it. I love it. um, The um,
1: the the movie that you said was the worst movie. Oh, it was uh, Battlefield Earth. Oh, okay, Battlefield
0: Earth. Yeah, Yeah, I think that's the one.
1: It reminded me of a a story I once read. uh, Once again, along these lines, in which the aliens came to Earth um, and they found all these creatures with a hard shell, which they thought were the intelligent creatures. Uh, we would call them cars, uh, but they thought that the, you know, the things in the cars were just parasites that um, that, that ex- <laughs> <laughs> on the back of, or on the inside. of oh, dear! <laughs> so yeah, interesting stuff. How do you measure intelligence? One of my,
0: one of my golf partners who loves science fiction um, has uh, recently watched a series, which I, I haven't watched yet, or it might have been a movie, where all the intelligent people, the highly intelligent people of the world, die off. And suddenly, the uh, most average man in the world becomes the most intelligent man in the world. <laughs> it's all sort of, and everyone else is dumb. So I, I can't wait to watch it. That sounds like fun. I'm pretty sure it's a comedy. <laughs> uh, but Giuliano, thanks so much. Thanks so much for your question. Uh, really appreciate it. Nice to hear from you. Quite literally, in. Uh, that respect. Let's move on to our um, last question for this week uh, from our good friend Ulf Peterson in Sweden. I think last time we um, answered a question from Ulf, I was able to give him the wonderful news that a young Swedish lass won the New South Wales win- Women's Golf Open here in, in Dubbo, um, which uh, uh, I'm sure he was pleased to hear. Well, he, he writes, hello again, Andrew and Fred. Summertime is approaching rapidly here in Sweden. This goes on a bit, but it's worth reading. Summertime is approaching rapidly here in Sweden. Since we um, uh, are all still stuck in the middle of this COVID situation, there are only two activities that prove meaningful. One, exercising proper social distancing out on the golf course. Yes, we are still allowed that. So are we, Alf and two, brooding over astronomical conundrums. The first type of activity is now uh, made extra fruitful thanks to a funny little book called Five Irons Don't Float. It's in my bag for summer. Great stuff. That's a book I wrote, Fred, about golf (laughs) psychology. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm so pleased that Alf's got it. I I want him to tell me what he thinks, and um, I I should warn you, if you haven't read it yet, Alf, it has coarse language in it. (laughs) And I'm talking both kinds. Anyway, uh, the first type of activity is now made extra fruitful due to the book called Five Ironstone Flow. The second activity, which I stress should not be performed at the same time as the first one, uh, provides a good workout for the little grey ones. Because I have already found help for the first activity, it is about the second one I wish, uh, uh, with which I wish to ask a question. Uh, first of all, he starts with facts. The Hubble constant is a measure of the rate of expansion of the universe. A strong scientific uh, evidence is said to be the redshift of light passing through space towards us on Earth. But to finalise this model in its entirety, we need to detect both dark matter and dark energy. However, our failure here is still a conundrum. So the question is, Is there really no other way of explaining the red shifting of light or even to detect a slowing down of the speed of light through space over great distances as an alternative explanation? If we peek out at the universe from Earth through a a window of, say, one degree, we notice few objects close by, but at greater distances, we find an increasing number and sizes of objects. In fact, looking toward the edge of the known universe, we should, in principle, detect an unlimited amount of mass due to all the objects. Is there no chance that this immense mass, albeit over vast distances, could not account for any overlooked effect on what we call the Hubble constant? Cheers for me for not stumbling on one word. Thank you, Alf. (laughs) Good question. That was great. And thanks for buying the book.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, um, so it must be some good physics in five irons don't float. It's it starts- <laughs> <laughs> it's
0: It was inspired by Rory McIlroy after he played a bad shot and threw his two iron in a lake. Okay. And um, I, I it just said because he had a tanty, and I decided I'd, I'd write a book about it. So that's Very what happened. <laughs> but I chose a five iron because no one carries two irons these days.
1: Uh, right. So that's that's which is one. probably
0: why he threw it in the lake.
1: Might be. That might be why. Hmm. So, um, okay, so to Ulf's uh, comments and questions, um, there is a a caveat that I would put in what Ulf describes as the facts. Uh, You know, yes, the Hubble constants, the current rate of expansion of the universe, uh, let's put put the details on it. Um, And he says to finalize this model in its entirety, we need to detect both dark matter and dark energy, um, but we have done that. We know they're there uh, because of the uh, because of the properties that we see the universe exhibiting. Uh, the The problem is not detecting them; is working out what they are. Uh, and yes, that is still a failure. Um, I'm hopeful that dark matter might um, actually yield its secrets to us uh, not too far down the track. There's a lot of hopeful and promising signs. But uh, with dark energy, we're, we're still uh, really at a loss to account for this, at least at the subatomic level, as to what's going on. Uh, but, Ulf, your question, is there really no other way of explaining the redshift of light uh, other than the expansion of the universe, Uh, or even to detect a slowing down of the speed of light through space over great distances as an alternative explanation. Um, The the thing is that um, a lot of people have looked at this. Uh, I remember back in the 1970s, it probably was, um, there were people who were looking at alternative explanations for redshift, and one of the things... That uh, led to that was a scientist I actually worked with uh, in the Royal Observatory in Edinburgh uh, thought that he had detected what you might call a quantization of redshift. In other words, the redshifts were uh, sort of clustered around particular values um, that... Would suggest that there was something going on that we weren't aware of. Uh, in fact, that when you look in more detail and with better instruments than we had in the nineteen seventies, um, you could you could see this effect disappearing. So there is no, you know, there is no quantization. There, there are clusterings of redshift, but we understand why that is. It's because of uh, clusters of galaxies. Uh, so uh, uh, tired light was another suggestion. People have looked at this, tried to demolish what you might call the standard picture for a very long time and the the reason why the standard picture has held um, held its ground is because uh, when you look at the universe as a whole, and we now have the you know the wherewithal to look back almost to the first galaxies being born, uh, we can certainly see the flash of the Big Bang, the the, the cosmic microwave background uh, radiation. We can see the ripples in that, uh, the tiny temperature differences that uh, are, are the effect of sound waves. Uh, rocking uh, you know kind of echoing through the big bang all of that gives um, a really strong self consistency it all works and usually when you when you throw in you know a, another suggestion as to what might be going on it throws something else out and it nothing makes sense that that was that's one reason why um one of the early proponents of an explanation for the phenomenon that we we now refer to as dark matter the idea that um galaxies are spinning too fast to hold themselves together, that clusters of galaxies are uh, are, are moving too fast, there's there's too much circulation within the cluster for the cluster to hold itself together. Those are what we observe. Uh, We now observe much more than that, but back in the 70s and 80s, there was this suggestion that maybe we've got gravity wrong, that that Newtonian dynamics are different, uh, and that that led to a theory called Mond, Modified Newtonian Dynamics. Um, A man called Mordechel Milgram, uh, I think at the Weizmann, Weizmann Institute in Israel, did that work. Um, and so what it means is that we we, we we modify the idea of how dynamics work. And you can get rid of the problem, the puzzle with galaxies spinning too fast, but it doesn't do much for the problem of Clusters of galaxies, and it turns out that you still need dark matter. Uh, it just doesn't work. You've got all these inconsistencies over the bigger picture. So it's really the self-consistency of our view that leads us to uh, accepting the current conundrums. Um, and the you know the the, the idea of looking uh, at a one-degree window—it's uh, a great idea. You look further and further out, you see more and more objects that is something called Olber's Paradox, which cropped up in the, I think, the early 19th century, late 18th and 19th century. Um, uh, Olber's Paradox says that if the universe is infinite, uh, you, you should see a dazzlingly bright sky because... on any line of sight you're always going to find a star on it he talked about stars at that time Uh, and of course we don't we see darkness and that is because the universe is expanding it's because we uh, we see the light of things being redshifted so uh, our skies are dark they're not infinitely bright um there is an immense mass in the universe that actually feeds into all the calculations that uh, that go uh, to, to our sort of self-consistent picture. Um, I think any overlooked effect on what we call the Hubble constant, uh, as Ulf mentions, I think that would have been found already. Um, there is, there is, uh, you know, there are a few mavericks from time to time. Uh, I actually worked for one for a while, who had a quite kind of different picture of the way our galaxy worked. Uh, but um, overall, what you're looking at is the consensus. The consensus was, um, uh, in that case, was that galaxies are uh, as we understand them, and so the, the the effects all went away. That my maverick uh, colleague was looking at. Um, there, as I said, there are mavericks, but generally speaking, what we take is the the overall consensus. And that leads us to dark matter and dark energy, uh, for better or worse. Science is science, though. And if something does disprove that, then it will be taken on board. Our picture changes. We define things differently uh, as we as we get to, uh, you know, understand them better. So you could almost say, as always, watch this space. Um, there may be changes, but I think... What's more likely to happen is we'll figure out what dark matter is, it'll be some species of subatomic particle or or, or family of species of subatomic particles uh, that have eluded us so far, and hopefully one day we'll find out what dark energy is as well.
0: Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, indeed, indeed. That, that would, would be one of, one of the great moments, moments and, and we, w- we, we hope, hope that, that that will happen, happen in the not-too-distant future, but who can tell it's um, it, it's it's just one of those great mysteries that uh, people are working on and uh, fingers fingers crossed that they will make the connection there sometime in the not too distant future and Alf, in terms of your two questions um, stick to golf oh and um, uh, one little tip from my book uh, it's not about not hitting it in the water it's about not thinking about hitting it in the water <laughs> that that's that's the way your brain should work on a golf course
1: mm-hmm. So,
0: uh, and thank you for the question really appreciate it uh and fred i think that winds us up for another week thank you it so does. much sir
1: it does i um i'm very glad okay. to have spoken with you again and it's uh i look forward to the next time andrew
0: i uh, it'll be in about a week or so i imagine <laughs> uh, take care fred thank you yeah no worries see you soon That's Fred Watson, uh, astronomer at large, uh, part of the team here at Space Nuts. And thank you too for listening. Thank you for the questions. Don't forget, if you want to send an audio question, go to bytes.com slash Space Nuts and there's a little uh, recorder button there. As long as you've got a decent microphone built into or plugged into your device, uh, you can simply record the question. Don't forget to tell us who you are. We really need to know that. Uh, your name and your location, you don't have to tell us your, you know your entire name and address and tax number or anything like that, uh, just um, your first name and your location would be more than ample just so we can sort of connect you with the question and we look forward to uh, to what you're going to come up with in the near future. Of course, we're still taking questions on email, etc. So um, don't feel that this is the only way. And while you're on our website, have a look at the Space Nuts shop. There's all sorts of goodies there. Uh, there's also um, information about how you can become a patron. So it's bites.com B-I-T-E-S-Z dot com slash space nuts uh, from me Andrew Dunkley thanks again catch you again uh, again next time. On another edition of the Space Nuts Podcast.
1: Space Nuts, you'll be listening to the Space Nuts Podcast.
0: Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com.
1: This has been another quality podcast production from Bites.com.